the time tapes. After my experience at Borley Rectory, I slept the entire night without waking, and I am glad to say without any of the night terrors that I had experienced previous to my travel to Ipswich, unless of course they are not remembered. Possibly it was the long day of travel the previous day, or the chill late evening sat just beyond the grounds of the rectory. I do not know. I am undoubtedly thankful for this small mercy, though. My recountings of the events of that night may seem to be somewhat short. However, there is a strange truth I have found, in that on the instance of very little happening over a long period, much can be said. When many events happen in a short period, then there is little to say. The encounter was brief and indistinct, to say the least, lasting for a few seconds at the most. It was but a glimpse into another world. The mind I have found when it is confronted with situations as strange and mystifying as these can only register and take in so much. The finer details are lost. It is only the grosser elements that are retained, that is to say, the most obvious and possibly the most acceptable that the mind is able to process. I have also found in my experiences that if the mind cannot fully comprehend what it sees, then it ignores it. It is akin to a defence mechanism. Essentially, if events cannot be readily comprehended, then they are seemingly ignored. It is also my experience that when events of such phenomena are recounted to me, the recountings that are the most believable are the ones where the least is said about them. The more that is said and the more detail that is added, I oft find to be the cases that bear the least credence. Too much time having been spent thinking the experience through, and it always smacks of either total falsehood and a well-thought-out tale, or possibly an actual experience, but then embellished to make it more believable or sensational, more worthy of note and of the telling. Either way, neither is worth the investigating. This, I understand, is the opposite of what one might believe to be true, and possibly it is why the least believable of supernatural events are the ones that are published and believed the most. The more detail, the more proof of it being real and not fabricated. The press wants a good story that can fill so many column inches. The press is also biased. They play to what they believe their readers want. It is undoubtedly a good practice for business and revenue, but not so for the truth. Now the handkerchief, that was something that the mind could comprehend. It was solid and undeniable. I also felt that it was traceable. It was for this reason that I had, holding it in my hand on the carriage journey to our lodgings the previous night, 
determined that I would visit Borley Church the next day to see if I could view the parish register of baptisms, marriages and deaths. The parish was small, so I deduced that the register should easily be manageable in my search for the initials G.M. There was a real danger in this course of action that I could not deny. If I mentioned anything about the real reason for my interest, then I could expect a long and detailed tale of the hauntings of the rectory. This I absolutely wished to avoid at all costs. I therefore decided upon a white lie. I would, while keeping the existence of the handkerchief to myself, say that I was in the process of some family research, and that the initials G.M. had presented themselves, and also the location of Borley. I did not wish to make a habit of untruths, but I felt that there was little harm in this, it being a mild deception. Accepting that I would not be returning to Ipswich this day, or possibly the next, as I wished to see if the vision repeated itself on subsequent nights, I paid for the two rooms and stabling. I kept the receipt for the coroner's office to placate Edward, and I then subsequently retained my own room for an indefinite stay, but at the minimum for a further two nights. I inquired with the hotel proprietor as to the availability of transport back to Whipswich once my business was finalised, and I was assured that this could be arranged to my convenience. This done, I gave instruction and the receipt to the driver in the service of the Ipswich coroner's office, and instructed him to return and to inform Edward that I had decided to stay for a few days at my own leisure and expense. I also asked that it be relayed that I had not found anything of consequence to the case but that I would inform Edward in the very first instance of my finding anything that may have any bearing of significance. In truth, I did not feel that anything that I may discover would be of the nature that I could relay to Edward. I was, it would seem, becoming somewhat of an accomplished liar. I wasn't entirely sure if my reticence to divulge my true intentions was to save my friend from confusion and possible concern over my mental state, or whether it was to avoid questioning or possible derision. I feel that it was a little of both. I took the air on this morning, the 6th of March, opting to walk the short miles to Borley, and arriving at the church at what I deemed to be a reasonable time, Stepping inside, I was pleased to see that there was a person, a young man I would presume in his thirties, putting notices onto the board at the back of the church. He turned and, smiling, wished me a good morning. I returned the greeting and asked where I may find a church warden or other such person that may be able to allow me access to the church's register of births, marriages and deaths. To my extreme joy, he replied that he was one such official. He proved to be a friendly young man, 
and to my shame I cannot recollect the name he gave. However, he led me to the front of the church, and bade me enter a small vestry. As one may expect, there was the usual paraphernalia of the church, a large wardrobe which through an open door I could see the vestments, some more ornate than others for specific events in the church's calendar. The smell of incense was strong, the rich, sweet and somewhat spicy aroma of frankincense, and I spied the thurible, the metal censer, suspended from chains. Of most interest to me was the writing desk, and undoubtedly where the sermons were written, and the large rectangular ledger that had now been placed upon it. The ledger was rather thicker than I had envisioned, and I was wondering how many names there may be in there. However, my fears were allayed on the opening, as the majority of the pages proved to be blank. This ledger would last the parish for some considerable time, I warranted. Informing the warden of the initials G.M., and upon a moment of inspiration of the year of 1835 or 36, or at least in the region thereof, for the commencement of our search, I having reasoned that the lady in my vision was in her early twenties, the birth for the parish, not covering many pages, took only a short while to peruse, and to realise that there was no joy to be had there. Without my prompting, the warden moved on to investigating the deaths, and again there was no sign of a GM. This was, I must admit, somewhat of a relief to me. I cannot explain why, as I had not known the lady but something about the endearing scene that I had witnessed for just a moment had made an impression on me. It also struck me that a few pages turned could move time from birth to death, and how short in the overall scheme of things our lives are, to eventually become a mere line on a page. Our final hope was in the marriages, and thankfully this proved to yield the information that I so desperately wanted to find. There was dated on the 23rd of March, 1857, the marriage of Grace Merriweather and John Coldwell. This was of the most wondrous news to me. The record also noted that John Coldwell was of the parish, Miss Merriweather, and of course now Mrs. Coldwell, was not of the parish, explaining her absence from the births. The warden now looked rather pensive, and turning the pages once again to the deaths, simply pointed at an entry detailing the death of John Coldwell in the following year, 1858. He said that he was sorry he hadn't recognised the initials G.M., as he had only been in the parish for a few short years, and therefore he did not recognise Grace Merriweather, whereas he did know of Grace Coldwell. This was both a matter of splendid news to me, and also one of instant regret, in that I realised, the name not having changed in the ensuing years, that Grace Merriweather had obviously not remarried, and she had spent the best part of her life as a widow. By my reckoning she would now be in her early sixties, 
I asked if the address was known, and if it was not too much of a presumption on my part, if the whereabouts of the Coldwell House could be provided to me. The warden replied that he saw no harm in this, and undoubtedly Mrs. Coldwell would be most pleased to find that potentially she had an as yet unknown relative. Directions were provided to me along with the expressions of good luck, and for me to pass the warden's best wishes on to Mrs. Coldwell. I, in return, thanked him for his graceful assistance, and gave assurances that I would indeed pass his best wishes on. The directions given, I took my leave, and it being as described only some half a mile and the area not being too populous, the house was easy to find, I was told, and I found myself walking at a brisk pace, eager to reach my destination. The small cottage I arrived at, which was painted in the ubiquitous Suffolk pink, although officially being in Essex, but so close I suppose the borders and influences were somewhat blurred, made for a homely countenance. Its roof had recently been rethatched, and a trail of smoke emanated from the chimney. A small white picket fence delineated the property from the surrounding land. After my eagerness of wishing to find a GM, and the speed at which I had covered the short distance to the end of my search, I now found myself unable to open the gate. I simply stood there, taking in the cottage and remembering the detail of the sad turn events, just a year after what undoubtedly must have been a very happy day for the then Miss Merriweather, when she became Miss Grace Coldwell. There was nothing for it. I had had the good fortune to so easily find the object of my search, and unless I wished to give up my investigation, I had to speak to Mrs. Coldwell. I do not remember opening the gate, knocking the door, or entering the house. It has all become a blur, such was my inner torment as to what memories I may raise for her. I do not remember what words I said to gain entry to that perfect cottage. I believe I mumbled something along the lines of I may have something that belongs to you, or some such inane comment. I do remember sitting in a rather cosy front room, and the kind, gentle lady that sat across from me. I also remember offering her the handkerchief and the momentary look of surprise, and then joy, and then sadness as a tear formed in her eye. When she spoke it was with a tenderness, not anger or regret. She simply stated, My John gave this to me the night he proposed. We were married the very next year, and were cruelly separated by the most permanent of means— a little under a year beyond that. He died in a shooting accident. She did not elaborate any further, and I did not press her. There was a long pause, which I did not want nor dare to break. Finally, breaking the silence and raising her head, her gaze came to rest on me. She asked, How did you come by this? It is as fresh and new as the day John gifted it to me. You see the ring? 
she raised her hand. It was wrapped in the handkerchief. I lost the handkerchief the very same day. The ring I still have. My John, I do not accept in my heart. I looked at my feet, not knowing what to tell her, but I could not lie, and so decided upon the plain truth. I told her the events of the night before, how I had sat on the tree stump at dusk, and witnessed for the briefest of moments their walking in the grounds of the rectory, and of the handkerchief dropping from her sleeve, and somehow I could not explain falling to the ground in the here and now. I explained my visit to the church, and the help of the warden in finding her. The reason for my real visit, the finding of the body, although I guess she must have known of the event, I did not mention. It felt as though it would have sullied this moment. She did not look surprised or incredulous, or indeed show any great emotion. She just held my gaze. Eventually, she said, I saw you. I have always had a good memory for faces, and that day there for the briefest of moments was a shadow cast just across from the rectory, yet there were no clouds in the sky. For a moment I saw a distinguished gentleman sat in the gloom, and then the shadow lifting, he, or as now I am sure, you, were gone. She continued, I have never mentioned this to anyone, and in truth the joyful events of that day and the plans we made while walking drove everything else from my mind. When I had a moment to consider what I had seen, it was then just an indistinct memory, half forgotten, half real, and I put it down to a trick of the light. But it was real, and it was you. How can that be so? I answered that I had no explanation, and no proof beyond the handkerchief she now held, pristine, yet decades old. She paused and then asked, The man, the one they found in the grounds, was that coincidence or something else? I replied that no, I could not see how he had anything to do with these events. I lied, there was a link somewhere, but I could not sully the moment by linking the two events together. Edward, having told me that he was not going to include any reference to the pawn ticket in his report, as such, I could be sure that he had not mentioned it to anyone other than those of us that he had contacted by letter. There was no reason that Grace should ever know that I now suspected that it was not only a handkerchief that had found itself inexplicably transported through time. Grace asked me to walk with her, and we walked to the rectory where on arriving she asked me to show her the tree stump that I had sat on the previous night. As strange as it may sound, it was almost as though I had always known Grace, and I feel that it was the same for her. I had only seen her once, not twenty-four hours ago, but I had seen her in her youth. She had seen me only once, but she had known of me for over forty years, although she knew not who I was. 
We parted at the tree stump, and in parting she stepped forward and hugged me, and thanked me for in some way bringing John back to her. For now it was many years ago, but also she said in a strange way, only yesterday, and John was alive, for that was how it had been to me. I shall only add that even though the face and hands may have aged, in that moment her eyes shone with the pure lights of youth and the deepest love. I returned to Sudbury and informed the proprietor that I would only be staying two more nights, and two days later I left Borley to never return again. I had intended to visit the same spot for a number of nights to see if the events I witnessed unfolded again. Now I did not wish to, and I returned only to remember the lady that I had sat there with on that second day in Borley. To wish to see the events unfold again now felt somehow wrong and disrespectful, and in my heart I knew that the moment that I had witnessed should stay as it was and not be repeated or examined. I shall not jump ahead for now to include knowledge gained since. I shall only say that as I left that place I left with no more knowledge or explanation than upon my arrival. I could recount the facts, if they can be called that, of mine and Grace's experiences, but that would not be an explanation of what had happened, only a description. I informed Edward by letter that I had not found anything in Borley that could shed any light on the case. I did not stop my journey in Ipswich, rather I headed straight to the railway station, catching the first available train back to London, and so I did not allow the time to visit my friend. Upon my return to London, and for several days after, the pawn ticket just sat on my writing desk, unattended and unobserved. The case and my interest started out as that of an unexplained body. It ended as that of a sweet, sweet lady, of tragic circumstances and of a life half-lived, yet with dignity and grace, and the former interest seemed only to serve to sully the memories of the latter. That was not something that I could be the cause or the merest part of. I am forever grateful to Grace Merriweather, to Grace Coldwell, as she became, for she showed me the light, the endurance, the indisputable courage of the human spirit in the face of the unknown, pain, adversity and loss. It is this that gives me hope when I witness the darkest of happenings, the human capacity to endure, to recover, to hope, to dream, to hold on to that which is good, gives hope for us all, no matter what is to come, and I believe that we will all need those admirable traits. The coin that I have kept on my person at all times since it was gifted to me, by another stranger in an act of kindness and bravery in the darkest of circumstances, now sits in my top pocket, wrapped in the handkerchief bearing the initials G.M. The handkerchief 
that had once held an engagement ring tenderly wrapped in its folds, the handkerchief that Grace Merriweather had pressed into my hand on our first and final parting. The Time Tape Chronicles, The Casebook of Dr. Miller, is written, narrated and produced by Charles Walker, copyright 2023. I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast and would love to hear from you. To get in touch, please email thetimetapeschronicles at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you here again soon.